You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Yeah, if you would, uh, if you've got your Bibles, we might come put the scripture up just yet. Thanks, but uh, we're uh, going uh, surprise, surprise into John chapter three. Um, and uh, while while we were away, I actually had a comment from one of you this morning that uh, their leaders and our deacons did a brilliant job of looking after this church for the last month, and. Um, that's the uh, the feedback I've heard from others. So I want to thank them, all of our deacons and leaders. I want to thank all of you who supported them and prayed for them and encouraged them over that time. And uh, it's good to know that the Church of God can continue with uh, when myself as a leader is not here. It encourages and excites me that it's in good hands while we're away. And you've had a feast of great preaching over the last month and uh, I've listened to the, the sermons the audio of the sermons four weeks ago John preached leading up to Christmas Day about the most important event in human history the incarnation of Jesus Christ and how the Son of God became human to save humans two weeks ago Mike challenged us all not to miss God's call on our lives in this year, this coming year and he looked at how Moses, who was a fearful shepherd who couldn't string two words together to make a decent sentence, was used to confront the most powerful man on earth and make sure that God's purposes were done. Then last week, Harley did a great job of covering John chapter 3, thank you Harley, and what it means to be born again and the Father's purpose in sending his son to earth. And he stole a bit of my thunder a bit of what I'd already prepared to preach Harley had preached on so, but he did a great job of it I'm sure you would agree if you haven't heard it we can get the audio to you for all three of those and uh, highly recommend you listen to them I've got to say I was stirred and I was challenged and I was excited to hear their preaching I'm proud of all three of them actually they did a great job they're, uh, they're young men who have a passion for the word of God and the passion to serve it up to us with clarity, with accuracy, um, with relevance to our lives and, uh, and they're willing to step out even when it takes them out of their comfort zone to serve the word of God to us. If you haven't thanked them yet for that, I encourage you to do it this week after church or something, um, give them a pat on the back and thank them for that or send them a text message or something to encourage them. We'll be hearing from all three of them, I hope, more often in the future coming as well because they are, uh, they're great young preachers who God is going to use in years to come. So our text today, as I say, is from John chapter 3, but we'll start at the end of John chapter 2, if we can have that up. Thanks, Adriana. John 2.23 Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, Jesus says again, truly, truly, making his point. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus is an interesting character. We only find him referred to by name in John's Gospel. None of the other Gospels mention him, or at least not by name. And he was a Pharisee, one of the ruling religious leaders. In fact, he seems to have been quite prominent among the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the experts in the Bible, in the Law of Moses, which is our Old Testament. The Pharisees knew every part of the Bible as it existed in their day, and they knew it in minute detail. We might be able to recite a few of our favourite verses, John 3.16, Romans 8.28, and a few others that might be your favourites. Um, but the Pharisees could recite from memory vast swathes of their Bible. In fact, some of them had memorised the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament. So when I say they knew their Bible, I mean they really knew their Bible in ways that we can't comprehend. But then, did they really? Did they really know their Bible? We read in that passage today that one of the leading Pharisees and one of the main teachers of the time had not understood one of the most important teachings in the Old Testament, one that Jesus himself insisted that he should have understood, the need to be born again. The Pharisees had enormous control over the religious and the daily life of the people at the time. They were painstakingly careful in their interpretation of scripture. They were meticulous in how they worked out how to obey those scriptures. They took the Ten Commandments and the various other laws in the Old Testament very seriously. And they sought to understand how to apply them to the trickier situations in life. We face some of the same challenges today when we read our Bibles. For example, the seventh commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. This seems to be pretty plain. You don't go about killing people. We have cops to 
to arrest and courts to convict and prisons to contain those who go around killing people. But what does that mean for a cop who might have to shoot someone dead to prevent a further tragedy? Or for a soldier that's called to frontline action in a war? Must we all be pacifists who refuse to go to war, who refuse to serve on the police force in case we're called to actually kill someone? What about the government? Should the government have the right to take away someone's life for horrific crimes? Should the death penalty be permitted? And is abortion covered by this command? The answer to some of these questions are more obvious than others, but uh, they're not necessarily entirely plain. The Pharisees sought to understand these questions and to provide answers so that people knew how to obey them. Sometimes their, their efforts were helpful. For example, in regard to the Sabbath, the fourth commandment says, if we can have that up, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. What exactly constitutes work? seems fairly obvious that having, having a Sabbath day means taking a day off from your regular weekly job, whether you happen to be a plumber or a shop assistant or a manager or a student. If you're having a Sabbath, then it would seem fairly plain that you're at least, at the very least, take a day off once a week for that. But does that mean a plumber can't fix a block drain at home on the Sabbath? Does that constitute work? Or the photography student, we've got a couple of photography students amongst us. Does it mean because they're studying photography at uni during the week that they can't indulge their passion for photography on the weekend? Does that mean they're working? The answers are not that plain to some of the questions we ask. So the Pharisees set themselves to defining the boundaries of what is and what isn't work so that the people and themselves could be obedient to the commands of God and their efforts to help ensure that people rested for one day a week, spending time with their families and hopefully time in worship rather than always working. That's a good thing. We should be having a Sabbath. We should be having a break. But sometimes their demands become burdensome, hurtful and even absurd. For example, you're permitted to walk a Sabbath day's journey from your home on the Sabbath. That's approximately one kilometre you're allowed to walk from home without breaking the command that you're working. But if you wanted to walk behind that Sabbath, beyond that Sabbath day's journey, you had to deposit some bread and water at the one kilometre mark, which then became the, for religious purposes, the boundary of your home, and you were permitted to walk another kilometre beyond that. Now, whether you should put another at that second kilometre mark and continued, I'm not quite sure. But it shows some of the absurdity that the Pharisees went to in trying to interpret the law. Another example. 
You were permitted to light a candle five minutes before the sun set on Friday. Saturday, Friday night sundown through to Saturday night sundown was the Sabbath in the Jewish times, and still is amongst Jews. So you were permitted to light a candle five minutes before the sun went down on the Friday evening, but if you lit it five minutes after the sun went down, that constituted work, and you were breaking the commandment. We don't think about those things today. That's not something that troubles us very much. But in a 21st century context, that would mean you are permitted to turn on your lights on a Friday evening before the sun goes down, but not after. If you forget to turn your lights on, you sit in darkness for the whole night. But even our act of turning on the lights before the sun goes down means someone else has to work the Sabbath to provide power to our homes. Does that mean we are forcing someone else to break the Sabbath and therefore we, in some sense, are guilty of that same sin? What are we to do? These were the areas of interest to the Pharisees. They were so concerned with obedience to the law of Moses that they sought to interpret every single aspect of daily life in light of the law defining boundaries of what is obedience and what is not obedience to the law. No detail, no matter how minute, escaped their attention. And they compiled all these regulations in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah dealt with prayers, tithes, agricultural laws, the Sabbath and various other festivals, marriage and divorce, civil and criminal law, sacrifices, the temple, diet and purity is not much excluded from the Mishnah. Nothing escaped the notice of the Pharisees. In fact, their laws dealing with the Sabbath, its four short verses in the Ten Commandments in our Bibles, took up 24 chapters of the Mishnah. That's how meticulous they were to determine what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. But they were also able to find loopholes where they could exploit in the law. Their interpretation of the Sabbath day's walk is one of those loopholes that they learned to exploit. So that raises the question of the hard attitude. Were they mostly concerned with how to obey the law or were they more interested in what they could get away with? Of course, the Pharisees contained both types. They weren't all bad, they weren't all good. We face that same challenge as well today. When we read the Bible, are we reading it with a view to how do we obey what we read here and we understand here? Or are we reading it with a view to how do I find a way around this or how do I find something I can do because it's not clearly forbidden in Scripture? Jesus, we know, was frequently scathing in his attacks on the Pharisees. For instance, in Matthew 23, he launches into attack, an attack on the Pharisees when his, while he's talking to his disciples. And then Jesus said to his disciples, to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
the Pharisees apparently were quite obvious. You knew if you were following a Pharisee down the street, you could tell by the way he dressed, the way he carried himself, by the way he would stop in the middle of the road to say his prayers and the way he would bow like this as he was saying his prayers and nothing would move him out of the way until he'd finished saying his prayers. A person could be drowning and he wouldn't lift a finger until he had an opportunity to take off whatever garments might get wet during the process and and defile them. He wouldn't lift a finger to save a drowning woman because he would be defiled by touching a drowning woman. The Pharisees were almost bizarre in their uh, meticulousness. It's no wonder Jesus launched into them. He continues in that same passage in Matthew 23, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, Jesus said to them. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus says again, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus didn't have very much time for the Pharisees, because he saw the way they were loading the people of God with minute details that missed the meaning of the law and of the scriptures. Each and every one of us should be challenged by what Jesus said to the the scribes and the Pharisees, for we all try to present ourselves as better to the world than we know in our hearts that we really are. How many of us preach but do not practice? And then we judge others by standards that we're not prepared to uphold in ourselves. Can I suggest that all of us determine to show others the same grace in their lives that we would want them to extend to us? Now I'm sure as I said that not every Pharisee was guilty of such pride and hypocrisy as this, but seems to have been a pretty common mark of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, and sadly may be no less common amongst Christians today. As Harley pointed out to us last week, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How quickly and how easily we gravitate towards condemning the world rather than seeking to extend grace to others so that they might be saved. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had many, many run-ins with the Pharisees and that the Pharisees from quite early in Jesus' ministry set themselves the additional task not only of interpreting the law, but the additional task of destroying Jesus. And this was a group that Nicodemus was a prominent part of. 
Jesus said to Nicodemus when he came to visit him, Are you the, the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus is one of the highest ranking Pharisees of the time. He was the teacher of Israel. It's quite emphatic in scripture, not just a teacher, he was the teacher. He was probably the most prominent teacher of the time. But he didn't understand what Jesus was talking to him about because he'd become bogged down in the minute details that they had spent so much time on. But there was something different about Nicodemus. Remember when we started at the end of John chapter 2, it said, Now when he was at at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus would not entrust himself to man, it tells us, because he knew what was in man. But then a man of the Pharisees came to Jesus by night. And it seems Jesus did entrust himself to Nicodemus. At least he did to some extent. Jesus knew full well even early in his ministry that the Pharisees were out to get him. And yet he received Nicodemus and talked to him about deep, profound, spiritual truths that he hadn't talked to anyone else about yet. Not even his disciples had heard about being born again. Nicodemus was the first person to learn of this necessity, a man of the Pharisees. So I said there was something different about Nicodemus compared to most other people and compared to most of the Pharisees. But Nicodemus seemed to be a genuine inquirer. As a ruler of the Jews and as a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, of course, had a responsibility to make sure that he didn't get led astray by false messiahs. There had been plenty of men and revolutionaries in the hundred or so years before Christ who claimed to be the messiah, come to set Israel free. But they all met a grisly fate or faded into obscurity. Nicodemus would have known all about these false claims that people had made in the past. But there was something about this man, something about Jesus Christ, that seemed to separate him from the other self-proclaimed saviours and messiahs. The Jews had been waiting so long for the true saviour of Israel, the promised messiah to come. They'd been waiting 400 years without hearing a word from the Lord. And they've been praying and begging and pleading and waiting and looking for the Messiah. And so many had come claiming to be a Messiah and proving not to be. Nicodemus then had a responsibility probably to determine whether this was the Messiah. But he came by night, it tells us. We don't know for sure why he came by night. Was it maybe the best time to get an audience with Jesus when he didn't have crowds around him? Maybe. Or was he afraid of getting caught out by the other Pharisees 
for being seen with Jesus, they are already scheming against this new teacher. I personally lean towards Nicodemus being worried that he would get caught out by the Pharisees. For those who are interested though, John in his gospel frequently uses the contrast between day and night and light and dark for theological purposes to contrast the unbelieving world and in this case an unbelieving Nicodemus and the dark heart of man whom Nicodemus represents with the light that Jesus Christ alone brings to the world. As you read through John's Gospel, you'll see time and time this contrast between light and dark. It's hard to point the finger at Nicodemus for being secretive or even fearful. If he was caught socialising with Jesus, it would have been disastrous for his standing in the community. He would have been kicked out of the Pharisees. He would have been kicked out of the synagogue. He probably would have lost all his income. His whole family would have been outcast, possibly for generations to come, in their own town. The risk he took in going to Jesus at all was high, but the potential consequences were costly. But Nicodemus went to find out for himself if Jesus really was what the people were saying about him, if Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah. And if he was, then any price is worth paying to follow him. It's reasonable, I think, to assume that at some point Nicodemus concluded that that is exactly who Jesus was, the promised Messiah. For later on in John's Gospel, Nicodemus requests that Jesus get a fair hearing before the Pharisees. If we jump forward, we don't have it on the screen, but if we jump forward to John 7.32, we read that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering things about Jesus and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. When the officers came back empty-handed, the chief priests and the Pharisees said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in, in him? Or maybe one or two of them actually did. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to him, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus put his head up to defend Jesus and quickly had it chopped off. But they might have put him back in his place temporarily, but after Jesus' crucifixion, he helped Joseph of Arimathea, who was another ruler of the Jews, to take away the body of Jesus for a proper burial. Was Nicodemus ever born again? We don't know for sure. But from the little we read of him, he does seem to have been a changed man. He was prepared to speak up on Jesus' behalf before the chief priests and the Pharisees and he was willing to risk it all to give Jesus the burial he deserved. He seems to have been willing to pay the cost of following Jesus, which is often a sign that someone is born again. And the fact that Nicodemus was the first person that Jesus entrusted himself to, 
the first person that Jesus spoke deep spiritual truths to suggests to me that he was a genuine inquirer, that Nicodemus genuinely sought to know the truth about Jesus Christ. Are you uncertain about whether Jesus is all we make him out to be? You too can go to him, at night and in secret if necessary, to find out for yourself. But Jesus will never turn away a genuine inquiry. But don't go if you're not prepared to pay the cost, a cost which may include rejection by all your family, friends and workmates. So what have we learnt from our brief look at Nicodemus and the Pharisees? Firstly, we've learnt that Jesus knows the heart of every single person, whether they come to him or not. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Jesus, you'll recall we read, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You can't keep anything hidden from the side of Jesus. It's pointless to even try. Secondly, though, the good news is that Jesus, even though he knows the sinfulness of our hearts and our deepest thoughts and our desires, doesn't turn away from those who come to him with a genuine desire to know him, to know the truth about him. He knows what is in you. He knows what is in me. And still he came to save us. He came to save us, not to condemn us. It's tough to know how to live right. The Pharisees, for all the bad press they get in the New Testament, were desperately trying to live obedient to the law of God as revealed in their Bible. They tried to figure out how the commands of God applied to every area of life. It's tough to know how to live right. But trying to live right when you haven't been born again is not only futile, it's fatal. We don't have it within us to obey the law, not to the standard that God requires, unless we have a heart that has been changed by him first. Our efforts to obey that law, if we haven't been born again, are bound to lead us in one of two directions. Legalism, self-righteousness and hypocrisies like we see of the Pharisees, or a disillusionment that leads us to abandon any pretense at obedience and drives us to seek our own pleasure at any cost. But when we recognise our failure and we turn to Christ, that we receive a new heart that results in a changed life. We may come to Christ timidly at the start, but there will be, as we go on, an increasing willingness to be identified with him, just as we see in Nicodemus' life. Not all of us have had dramatic conversions to Christ. Christ. Some start off small, and grow gradually in faith and boldness. We should extend grace to those who appear to be genuine in their desire to know and to follow Christ, even if they're uncertain about how to go about it. 
Judas was a disciple of Christ, you might recall, while Nicodemus was still trying to feel his way. But Nicodemus was the one who helped to bury the man that Judas betrayed. Who despises the day of small things, it says in Zechariah. From small acorns, great oaks grow. So it's tough to be a Pharisee. There's so many laws to obey that it would be exhausting to keep up and to keep on top of them. And it's condemning to live a life that is controlled by the minutest details of law keeping. Let me tell you plainly, you can't do it. You cannot obey the law. If you lived a thousand years, you wouldn't get it right. Every attempt to obey the law is doomed to failure for at least three reasons. Firstly, your heart and your desires are sinful from birth. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus that he and we need to be born again. We need a fresh start. And in our natural state, before we're born again, we don't have the proper tools to even understand spiritual matters, let alone obey them. The Apostle Paul said, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you're not born again, you're not a spiritual person. You cannot understand the things of God. And thirdly, the law was not designed to make you righteous before God. Rather, it was designed to reveal to you that you need help, that you can't do it. That you need God himself to intervene on your behalf. Unfortunately, the law only has the power to condemn us, not to make us righteous. And all the additional details that the Pharisees added to the law only condemn more. They serve, or at least they should serve, to make us more aware of our inability to live up to the necessary standard. In fact, if we continue to try to obey the law without the changed heart that comes from being born again, the law does more than just condemn us. It pushes us to hypocrisy, which is one of the greatest sins in the Bible. Recall Jesus calling the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites, 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 over and over. There is one, however, there is one who was able to keep the law perfectly and in the minutest detail. There is one whose name is Jesus Christ. If you put your trust in him, he takes away all the guilt and all the condemnation that goes with our failure to keep the law, our failure to measure up. And he replaces it with his perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. The one that we cannot do ourselves. But it's also tough to live without the boundaries that the Pharisees laid out too. There's so many life situations that are not dealt with plainly. We have to work out ourselves for the best course of action to take. Some people get paralysed by indecision. They so desire to obey 
that they fear making the wrong decision in areas that scripture doesn't seem to cover and end up making sometimes no decision at all. Should I take this job or that other job, for example? What if I choose the wrong one? What if I choose the job that pays better but is not the one that is God's plan for my life? It may ruin my life. It may ruin my witness. How can I be sure? If only the Bible made it clear which job I should take. Times like this, it would be almost desirable to be a Pharisee because they would have the answers. This is the job you should take. We need grace to live our lives and to make mistakes with our lives without suffering condemnation that the enemy throws at us and without succumbing to the soul-destroying guilt that crushes us and drives us away from God. That grace is only available in Jesus Christ. And it comes as part of the package of being born again. And we need wisdom to interpret what Scripture says about that important job decision, that important moving house decision, that important should we have another baby decision. It takes wisdom to interpret what Scripture is saying to you, especially when it doesn't direct, directly address our situation, as it doesn't for so much of life. We need help to understand what is acceptable in God's sight and what is not. Sometime in the next few weeks or so, I hope to give you some tools that will help you make those decisions, the important ones and the trivial ones, that enable you to live within God's will. But ultimately, that help is available only from the Holy Spirit to those who have been born again. I haven't said very much about the whole process of being born again this week. Harley did a great job of that last week. But without a new birth, a birth from above, a spiritual birth, nothing else matters. Nothing else but a radical change of heart, life and direction will allow us to live free from guilt and condemnation. Nothing less than replacing your stained righteousness with the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ is required. Have you been living your life as a Pharisee trapped in the works-based machinery of life trying to please God? Or have you rejected the Pharisees' exhaustive demands but instead been paralysed by fear of missing God's will for your life? Or maybe you've rejected both extremes and instead have chosen to live a life that ignores the Bible and the commands of God entirely and pleases only yourself. All of these need to be repented of and brought to the foot of the cross. For only Jesus Christ is able to deal with them effectively once for all by his life, his death, his resurrection and the new life he gives. Have you done that? 
Have you put your trust in him? If not, I invite you to do so right now where you sit. Put your trust in him. For he is faithful. He does not abandon or reject anyone who comes to him with an open heart and a genuine desire to know him. If you have done that this morning or if you do that any time, I'd love to know about it so we can celebrate together. We can pray with you and pray for you. If you've been living a life of one of those three extremes that I just mentioned, I urge you to ask God for his forgiveness now. Ask him to provide you with the guidance of his Holy Spirit to help you live a life that pleases him. I'm happy to pray for any of you that have any needs whether it's directly related to this or something else, if you're not certain about decisions to make and you want God's wisdom, or if you have any physical ailments or financial needs or whatever, I invite you in a few minutes to come up and uh, a few of us will pray for you and we'll trust God to do the work that only He can do. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.